This story to me is very much about how in families, generational trauma exists. We feel the effects of the things that have happened to our parents. It's in development at Hulu as a series. And so there's a number of steps that happen between mm. now and actually, you know, first day of shooting, as we've seen with Daisy Jones and COVID coming in and just postponing everything. But Daisy Jones will start shooting this fall. And so I'm hoping that Malibu Rising will, will follow, you know, next year. I really want my books to be fun and I, and I want them to what I'm trying to do is I want to do the work let me do the work of telling this story so that you as the reader don't have to do that much work when you're reading it you can sit back and relax and enjoy this every time push comes to shove my husband chooses to put his wife's career ahead of his own which is something that is not super common but I do think is more common than we talk about and to all of those men, I salute you. And I want, it, I want it to happen more often. I really benefit from that. Hi, and welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And we are recording this as Britain basks in temperatures hotter than insert place <laughs> of tropical location here. Which basically means that we're not coping very well no. because we are British. And whilst we love the heat, we also love to complain about the heat. Mm, and exactly. it's mainly because we don't have any air conditioning because we're stupid. Things I have toyed with it. Have you have toyed to get an air conditioning? But each year I toy with it. It's like what a five day spell that you need it, and then the rest of the time you don't. I've toyed with getting a ceiling. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this on podcast. I've toyed with more getting a ceiling fan. Is that because you want to be in your own Merchant Ivory film? <laughs> <laughs> no, a passage I think to it's like <laughs> no. I think it's part of like the that kind of retro American like thing, and also I. I, yeah, I don't. I quite like the look of yeah. it. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. Do you think it would help at all? I stayed in a place in Key West once with a ceiling fan. Did nothing. Did not. Uh, we used to have a ceiling fan at home when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah, it does. It's yeah. It's a fan. Mm. Why would it not work? It's not air conditioning, but it does move the air around. That's what I mean. So if the air is hot, they're just moving hot air around. Which, in a way, is what we do on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Should we shut up? We probably should shut up because it's a really good episode. Uh, and actually, what I wanted to say before we get into the full interview with Taylor Jenkins Reid, which I both of us, I think, mm. were very excited about, mm. was just a genuine thank you for listening uh, to us um, on season two and season one, of course, of bestsellers. But I was having a look the other day and we've got listeners, like a big bunch of listeners in some pretty cool places from the United States right. and New Zealand and Canada, Ireland, uh, Germany. Australia. And I think that's a massive that's a massive mark of respect to the writers that we've got. We've got amazing yes. writers on this, on season one and season mm -hmm. two. Brilliant writers, some that will be familiar to you, others less so. And those are the ones that we're saying you should absolutely go and check out. And I was seeing, in fact, I shamelessly jumped on Jimmy Fallon's Twitter feed this week because he had Dawny Walton's book as one of his summer reads. And I was like, yeah, yeah we, we discovered that. We spoke to Dawny. You discovered it, Natalie Jameson. Well, and, um, <laughs> I'm not sure I get that kind of, It's great to see those books getting a bigger platform as well, isn't it? You know. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. And, you know, genuinely, thank you for tuning into this and really hope that you find and discover some new books to love. And when we say that we put blood, sweat and tears into this, today in particular... <laughs> Sweat and tears have gone into this podcast. The state of the pair of us. Anyway, we'll leave you with that mental image as my earnest colleague Natalie Jameson introduces you to Taylor Jenkins Reid on bestsellers. So, Malibu Rising is Taylor's seventh book. Um, I first came to her through The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which you should totally read because she's also the genius behind Daisy Jones and the Six, as well as books including One True Loves. Um, and I would recommend that if you haven't read them, read them soon because at least Daisy, as far as I know, and One True Loves are coming to a TV or a cinema near you soonish. <laughs> and there may be more in the offing, which Taylor can tell us about. But Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on Bestsellers. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Do you get bored of talking about the book that's out? Because from my knowledge, most writers, you're, you're already working on the next one or the one after that already. So I'm not sure where your headspace is right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not that I get bored, but you're right. It's I'm I've already finished my next book or I'm about to finish it. And so 
uh, it is like going back in time and, and people will ask questions like, oh, like, how did you come up with this? Or why did you do that? And I'm like, yeah, why, why, why did, did I do I? that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's most people have, have read the book more recently than me at this point. Um, although I certainly read it 17,000 times the first time around. So um, yeah, it's, it's a nice, one of the things about my books lately is that I really um, try to throw myself into a distinct time and place for them. And so what's, what's nice about this is that I spent, you know, a solid two years thinking about Malibu in the eighties and surfers. And then I went on and started thinking about something else. And now I get to come back and be back in this world of Malibu and, and surfers in the eighties, which is so fun. So it's, it's like visiting an old friend. Set this one up for us then. Uh, I, and I, I probably have read this more recently than you, Taylor, because I finished it at three o'clock this afternoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we should probably explain that Mick Reaver has appeared in a couple of your books before. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he appears yeah. in, the, but, and it's his family that's the focus of the book, right? Yeah, it's the story is about four adult siblings, Nina, Jay, Hud, and Kit. And they have had to raise themselves um for a long time because their father McReva left them when they were children and their mother uh, passed away and so um McReva is a famous singer he's a crooner kind of like a Frank Sinatra Jerry Lee Lewis kind of singer uh and he is actually in two of my other books. He's Evelyn Hugo's third husband. So when we're talking about the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Mick Reva is number three. And that was the most fun chapter to write of that book. I really had such a blast. Um, People that have read it may know that it is different than other chapters in the book because it's a very specific thing that Evelyn sets out to do when she marries Mick Reva. and I just wanted to keep writing about him. So, so when, when I was writing Daisy Jones, there was this moment where I was like, well, I want to put somebody who's been in my other book in at a party with Daisy. And I was like, well, Mick Reva's the sort of cad who would be partying at the Chateau Marmont, you know, up to the various <laughs> things. So, so I put him there. And then, and then when I started to think about wanting to write about this family and uh, the sort of man that would leave his children, um, Mick Reva came to mind and it felt like, okay, here's my opportunity to really finally dive into this character that I've had so much fun with. Was that the starting point then for this story in your head? Was it him leaving his children or was it the, the children themselves? Cause the, the family themselves, the characters are also really well drawn and I feel like I know them. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I want Kit to come and live with us and I'll look after her. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what? She would probably love that. Um, yeah. For me, it was the kids. It was, I wanted to explore a family of siblings who, who uh, were not able to rely on their parents and had to grow up really early. And, and particularly the oldest daughter, Nina, who was the one who fills in all the gaps, who becomes the parent when there is no parent. I really wanted to explore both the trauma of that, but also the beauty of when these kids band together and how they come to love each other as much as they do. It is really satisfying as well, though, because I read it in the order I assume they were written. So with Evelyn Hugo first, um, I really enjoyed that chapter about Mick Reaver. Again, I don't want to give away what it is in case uh, it spoils it for anybody else. But then when he popped up in Daisy Jones and the Six as a reader, because I read them quite close together, I was like, this is so fun. Um, So then it was great (laughs) to kind of know more of the family in this one. And, And also, I think, to investigate those sibling relationships. I've got an older sister, Phil. Is your brother older or younger? He's younger, my brother. Yeah, and I don't know if you have siblings, Taylor, yeah. but uh, I mean, those relationships are ripe for, for writing about. Um, and I kind of love that you you kind of took on different aspects with each of the siblings. Did you draw on your own personal thing for that? Have you had siblings or other kind of friends and sisters be like, hang on a minute, is that from me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think every time, anytime you write a book and and I think you'll probably experience this too. Immediately you have people being like, oh, this is about me. And it's like, <laughs> I don't even think about you. <laughs> you know, it's like there is, there, you would just be surprised how many people think things are about them. But what's funny about this book is that, you know, I, I have a younger brother, his name's Jake. He's a, a few years younger than me. We grew up together. 
um, and are, are very close and as adults, you know, really have each other's backs and, and have been through a lot of stuff together and it's made us stronger. And so um, there's not a particular character who is based on me or is based on Jake. Um, although the first time that he read, the first time he read it, he was like, the brother's name is Jay and my name is Jake. And I was like, I know that it sounds exactly the same, but you have to trust me that Jay is just like a cool surfer name. And that that was what I had to do. Um, but, and actually Jake himself is much more like HUD, but does he know that? Does he oh know yeah, I told him right yeah. to his face. He's I, not hearing I, this right now thinking, I'm, am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the thing to me is like, it's a huge compliment to be HUD because he's the cute, sweet one who, you know, lives with his heart on his sleeve, which is just such an endearing trait to me. So mm-hmm. it, it's not that anybody is anyone I know, but but it is that the feeling of no matter what happens, me and you, we're going to get through this. And, and being willing to rise to the occasion to handle things that at a certain age you shouldn't have to handle or, you know, trying to be there for your siblings in a way because other people aren't able to, that's a feeling that I take a lot of pride in having with my brother, that, that we are there for each other. And so I did want to capture the beauty of when, and it's not all the time, but occasionally you have a sibling relationship where there is just a, a bond that is is no matter what happens unbreakable, and I and I see just a lot of beauty in that. Yeah, it is beautiful. I'm I'm actually going to say because usually we forget to do the reading until really close yeah, to well the done. end because yeah. we just get yeah. so engrossed in talking. But <laughs> yeah. let's let's hear a bit from um, Malibu Rising right. uh, if you're up for it, so that we can yeah. then dive straight into it afterwards. Yeah. So this this uh, this chapter is very specifically about Nina and her relationship with the water. Nina was out in the surf, having a hard time finding the kind of long, slow right-hander she was looking for. She wasn't there to shred, and the waves weren't right for it that morning anyway. All she wanted was to ride her longboard gracefully, cross-stepping up to the nose until the waves knocked her off. The beach was quiet. There was that was the glory of a tiny, exclusive cove protected on three sides by fifty-foot cliffs. While technically the beach was public, the only people who knew how to get to it were those who had access to private stairs or those willing to hike the jagged coastline and risk high tide. That morning, Nina was sharing the cove with two teenage girls in neon swimsuits who were sunbathing and reading Jackie Collins and Stephen King. Since Nina was the only one on the water, she hung out on her board just past the peak, unhurried. As she floated there, the wind chilling her wet skin, the sun crisping her bare shoulders, with her legs dangling in the water, Nina was already getting a small slice of the piece she'd come out here for. Lovely. So and, gorgeous. It's dreamy. Um, it's properly dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to come on to the role Malibu plays in a second, but while we're staying with family. And that house, by the way. Oh, that house. Yeah. So my kids are two and five. Yours are a bit old in that, aren't they? But yeah. uh, I definitely felt that I was reading this differently as a parent, right? Yeah. And I felt a, a sense of responsibility to the fictional children that you've created. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I'm right in saying your daughter's four, is she? That's very good. Very right. good. Yeah, she's about to be five. Yeah. And so how did that influence any of the writing, the fact that you are also a parent now? Oh, I mean, that that was the, that, that was the story for me. I think, you know, when you become a parent, you you instantly become a transitional generation. You are both a child of parents and you Mm. are a parent. And for me, having my daughter immediately made me reflect on the way that I was raised and what are the things that I wanna give to her that my parents gave to me. And, And what are the things that my parents and society, what are the things that I've absorbed from them that I want to end with me? And you know, I think it's something we have to be really, really active in thinking about, or at least certainly I have to be. I don't think it's a thing that's going to passively change for myself. It is a thing where, you know, and I think about it with something as universal as, you know, like I'm a woman and I'm raising a young girl and and women's bodies are uh, treated with such disdain in our culture. And I, I, feel it in myself and I hear voices in my head telling me that I'm not good enough or I should look a certain way. 
I have to be really, really active in not passing that on to my daughter. She's looking at me. She can see the way I see myself. The way that society's told me I'm supposed to look is so, it's in the atoms of my body at this point. And if I don't want her to live with that, then I have to break that cycle and be really, really active in excising it from myself so that I don't hand it on to her. That wasn't, a, I didn't have that problem until I had a daughter. It was mm -hmm. just, oh, that's just living in me and I'm punishing myself. Mm -hmm. So, so, and that's not a thing that you really, at least for me, it's like, oh, I'm the only one hurting from this, whatever. You know, it's like, well, I have to realize that, that we pass things on to other people. And so this story to me is very much about how in families, generational trauma exists. We feel the effects of the things that have happened to our parents. Uh, and, and look, I think I'm saying that in a, in a nurture way, but I think it's true in a nature way too. the studies that they're doing in terms of, um, you know, what lives in our bodies and experiences, you know, are represented physically too. We have to be thinking about the world that we want for our children and make drastic changes so that it, it doesn't look like the world that was for my mom and, the, and, and my grandmother and, and mm. you know, we, we have to change. And so this book is very much about trying to think about what changes you can make and not just following the path that's already been set for you. Right. Yeah. Because there's a part where um, I, I'm just slowing down my brain. So I'm, I'm not going to give anything away, but um, <laughs> in, in essence, Nina steps in to raise these kids, doesn't she? And she's, she's one yeah. of the kids herself. So she misses out on a college education. And it turns out that so had me. Yeah. And yet that cycle couldn't be broken. That was passed down. I found that right. really intriguing. Yeah. Well, I think it happens all the time. The thing that hurt you the most for yourself, so often we as parents end up recreating it unintentionally for our children. If, if your dad left you, you may leave your kids, not actually because you're any more likely, mm -hmm. but because it's the pattern that you know. So that's why, like, I look at my brother and, you know, we don't have a relationship with our dad or, or my, my brother does now. I don't. Um, and he's actively being, making different choices. He's really active about it, you know? And I think that's, um, I, I think it's just something that I find really, really fascinating and wanted to explore in this book is that we can unintentionally recreate our traumas for our children. And yeah. so how do you not do that? I, you know, as much as I enjoyed the sibling relationships, I was also fascinated by the baggage that your parents bring with them that they unconsciously or not know about. And I think it was, um, was it Jojo Moyes we were talking to last year, Phil, who was saying, and I think she said this quote, I can't remember who this quote is attributed to, but the fact that whenever you're reading something, sort of 80% of what you're reading is your own experiences that you're putting onto the, the text in the front story, of you. Yeah. 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 Um, and so aware that people will have all these different experiences and it's why people can relate to, I think, so many of your stories as well, because they do touch on so many of those points um i'm being careful about what i say because my mum listens to this podcast religiously she's our biggest <laughs> fan which is great <laughs> there's a lot going on in my family right now <laughs> so, uh, my mum and dad uh are one of the covid divorce statistics from last year mm. they're like late stage um and it's kind of uncovered a whole load of stuff um which i won't go into here but it is fascinating to to hear you speak about how active you have to be to break some of those cycles how good are you because one thing that I've struggled with as a fledgling writer um is kind of picking those scabs from your own life and wanting to explore them in a text but not wanting to overly damage yourself or hurt other people through what you're writing yeah yeah I mean this is here here's the thing I actually this this story in terms of um me pulling on my relationship with my brother and um, having grown up largely without a father figure as they do, um, is probably the closest I've come to, to emotionally anything I've gone through. Although to be honest, there's nothing in this book that you can trace in any way, you know, back to reality for, for me, uh, because that's just not a place I'm 
personally willing to go. Mm -hmm. And it has, it is nothing to do with me. I am in general, an open book. I run into somebody at a party and I'll within two minutes be asking like, like if you were like, oh, my parents, you know, COVID yeah. divorce. Like I very politely was like, mm -hmm, yes. But like, if we were not, like if I just met you at a party, I'd be like, tell, so what happened? Yeah, I like, will, tell yeah, everything. I'll tell like, you everything. You know, yeah, and then, and, then, and then reciprocate with me like, yeah, well, here's what happened to me. You know, like I, I just will tell anyone anything. But I've signed up for this. I've signed up to tell stories, to then talk about them, to share parts of my life. Um, my family hasn't, and the people around me haven't. My, my parents, my husband, my daughter, my in-laws, my friends. Uh, and so, what I take very seriously, and I think why I often, when people do text me and they're like, oh, is this me? Why I get so defensive about it is because like, do you know the lengths that I go to to never write about someone in my life? I won't do that to you. I, I wouldn't want it done to me. I wouldn't want someone else telling this story from their point of view. There's always multiple points of view. And so I'm not going to do that. And it's really, really hard. It's, it's, because I don't feel like my life is fair game to write about because my life intersects with so many other people's yeah. lives. And it's kind of the opposite of um, Nora Ephron, who is like my dream, you know, the person I look up <laughs> to so much and she's like, everything is copy. Nora Ephron had a hard edge to her that I love and admire, but I do not have. <laughs> and so to me, it's like, no, everything is not copy for, for me. Mm. I'm thinking, how do I tell this story and talk about something I want to talk about living entirely within fiction? Yeah. How do I make it emotionally true while being completely fake and there's not a single thing in here? Right, yeah. because ultimately yeah. it's a piece of entertainment, isn't it? Yeah. You're, yeah. you're selling this to us. We're buying this book to be entertained. I'm buying your book to escape from my dreary world and what's getting yes. on my nerves every day, you know? I Yes. And, and it's part of why I'm writing too, to be honest, because, and I think that's what's fun about the books that I've written, these past three books that I've written specifically for myself, is that I get to talk about things I really want to talk about. Like I get to talk about with this one, like generational trauma and cycles and family and how, what parents owe to their children. I get to talk about that. But if all I'm doing is talking about that, then it's not super fun. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for me. <laughs> so what, what, what I do is I go, well, what's super fun? Like, where's a really fun place to go? Where do I want to go in my mind? Where do I spend time? And suddenly it's like, ooh, I'll pretend I'm an 80s surfer in Malibu. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. do it. That's fun. <laughs> and so you get to do this really sort of wish fulfillment, you know, wild experience and then talk about things that matter. And and that combination is is a space that it's taken me a few books to figure out, but that's what I love so much about what I get to do is putting you know, the, the fizz and the bubbles with the thing that I really care about. Um, and so, and Malibu rising is, is, is exactly that. It's a story of a family and they love each other and they have a lot of trauma, but they're all beautiful and glamorous and living on the beach in the eighties, you know, surfing. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I was, I wouldn't want you listening to this to think, all right, this sounds quite heavy because there are heavy issues, but it's not. This is far from a heavy book. This would be a really perfect beach reading. I know, Natalie, you found that a lot of fun in this as well because you'd read it before me, didn't you? And you said to me, oh, you'll love this. And yeah, and, and also kind of one thing, just so that you're aware, Taylor, that Phil and I always champion is that I love an easy read and I'm aware of how hard it is to write a good yes. easy read and both of us kind of hate any sort of literary snobbery about books you're like if it's you know you do not know what kind of book you probably do but you understand what goes into um books and Malibu Rising has this dreamy landscape that yeah you want to hang out in I wanted to sit on that beach with Nina and her siblings and uh we mentioned that I mentioned the house briefly earlier is that like house is that anywhere to do with your style? Were you just kind of like living out some architectural digest fantasy? Were you like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I'm always living out an architectural digest fantasy, always. <laughs> Did you um, see the Cara Delevingne one recently? Yeah. Oh, I see them all. Car I mean, they're, yeah. Yeah. Can um, I just say this part? I've got no idea what the two you're talking about. <laughs> really? Yeah, genuinely. I, architectural digest, which is one of my favorite 
magazines, uh, they do these celebrity home videos where you go into a celebrity's home and you see, you know, okay. and, and Cara Delevingne just hers in particular, her house is just wild. It is just yeah. wild and I love it. And it's bold choices. It's just, it's great. Yeah. She's got um, a vagina tunnel. She's got like yeah. a ball pit upstairs. And I mean, yeah. we've got a vagina tunnel. Who hasn't got a vagina? I know. It's so mundane and pedestrian it's now, isn't insane. it? To have a vagina tunnel. Yeah, Gucci um, wallpaper, you know, the standard. Yeah. No, I, I, I really appreciate um, what you were saying a bit earlier, because I think I, from the beginning of my career, I set out to write books that you could pick up on a Friday and finish Sunday night. And, mm -hmm. and when somebody says, how was your weekend? You're like, oh, I just read the best book. That was my hope was to be able to do that. The experiences that I've had where a book felt effortless to read but still took me on such a journey that that is to me um that's that's the thing i'm aiming for all the time mm -hmm. and i think a lot of times it is harder to do than it looks and i think sometimes people read a book and they go oh well that felt really fun so it must not be meaningful and i do think that that things can be both and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that everyone needs to be that way but i really want my books to be fun and I, and I want them to what I'm trying to do is I want to do the work let me do the work of telling this story so that you as the reader don't have to do that much work when you're reading it you can sit back and relax and enjoy this and and let it be a ride that you're going on as opposed to text that you're having to you know do in chunks to process which I also love books like that uh, but but yes, coming back to the house, I have all of these old coffee table books now that I found in used bookstores and secondhand uh, that are all architecture beach houses in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I have like three books and they're so <laughs> fun. And I have this one in particular about Malibu and and what's really fun about Los Angeles and 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 any major city is you get these particular architects who are known within the city of like, oh gosh, it's a John Lautner house, like, you know, or like Richard Mutra, or, you know, people get really, really excited about particular architects that did a lot of work in Los Angeles. So I went through and I was like, what's a house that I would never want because it's concrete and industrial and, and sort of cold, but is like categorically beautiful. And I went through this Malibu beach house and I found one in particular, and I matched the exterior of one with the interior of another that I'd found and like pu pulled together this fake house made of real components and then and then just described it i should i should go i ended up giving that book to someone else who's doing research um on the adaptation of, of this but i should go back and just like take a few pictures of those and put the house together for people because it's yeah fun. yeah that'd be really cool and and so just on that then so to know that that's probably going to be built then <laughs> i know well we'll see so it's, i mean that's the thing like we so we it's in development at hulu as a series and so there's a number of steps that happen between mm. now and actually you know shooting the first uh you know first day of shooting as we've seen with daisy jones and covid coming in and just postponing everything right. um but but daisy jones will start shooting this fall and so i'm hoping that uh malibu rising will will follow you know, next year. Um, but there's a lot of good, good stuff percolating. And I'm really excited about it being in development at Hulu in particular. It's really and, cool. um, and so that creating the house, there's some great, I mean, I loved all the 80s references that you put in here. At one point, there's a conversation about dynasty that's referenced in. You yes. Know, yep. I thought, oh, you know, my mom, that was it. I mean, dynasty, it was, you know, Oh yeah. Crystal and Blake and that was it. That was the only thing. And you know, the house went quiet for it. Almost bigger than Dallas in our house, really. I part of what I do miss about the eighties and nineties and even early two thousands before everything was streaming is that you had to be at home in front of the television at a certain time yeah. or you were going to miss that episode. And so everybody was watching it together 
and we we have lost that to some degree but but it is fun when you're doing something that takes place in the 80s and and you have something like dynasty or what was happening on general hospital where it's in the air it's all everyone's experiencing it at the same time it's not like no no no, i haven't watched it yet don't tell me i you know if everyone is experiencing it at the same time uh which you know that's part of the fun about going back to the 80s or the 70s is is being able to indulge the the things that we've lost from yesteryear i've got one more ages question for you but my esp is telling me that natalie wants to ask you about daisy jones no, I was, I'll come on to that later. You I was sure? just thinking, you no, sure? it's taking me back to you because I, I can't remember how long Dynasty was on the air for, but I, I just have, had a very vivid memory of being, I think, first year of secondary school, so like 10. Yeah. Um, uh, and there was a friend of mine, there, we, I was in a Dynasty club, so we'd, we'd reenact <laughs> <laughs> the best scenes from Dynasty on a Monday morning after That's the weekend. Awesome. And so like when Crystal went down the stairs and stuff, <laughs> that's what we'd be doing in our um when we were supposed to be like reading about greek mythology and stuff we were actually just like i'm sure there was some greek mythology in dynasty but we were just yeah. acting it out in the classroom what's funny to me is that you're like oh i was in a dynasty club and to you that means oh we act out the scenes on monday morning <laughs> whereas to me i'm like what is that club what are you doing <laughs> but like, you said it's so like so obviously what we did was act of out <laughs> Yeah. Um, let me go back to um, another 80s reference then. Uh, I'll, I'll Some context, but I don't want to give too much because obviously the book skips between the, the 12 hours of the party mm-hmm. and flashing back to Phyllis in on, on the family life. But there's a bit in the party which says, she was on the first step of the front stoop talking to a group of women about whether Lionel Richie was an asshole. She was arguing that he was not. Now, why <laughs> have you chosen Lionel? Because Lionel's not an asshole unless you've got news to break. No, he's not. And that was He's one what, of the nicest people I've ever interviewed. I well, I've never met him and I have no reason to think he's an asshole. And I and I what I love about um most Hollywood parties is that when you have a famous person uh and and the people that are talking about them are are not as famous everyone has some story about a famous person that is either they are an asshole or they're not an asshole. That's the thing you're always trying to find out. Like even the other day, like I had a friend who has worked with Angelina Jolie a few times and I was like, oh, I've never met her. Is she cool or is she not cool? And and immediately she's like, the, the person was saying she's actually like, incredibly kind and thoughtful and very warm. And I was like, oh great. Cause I really, I like her and I want her to be those things. But it's just always the underlying question about any celebrity. Oh, are they cool or are they not cool? And it just means like, oh, are they an asshole or not an asshole? So I have no reason to think that Lionel Richie is, but that is, I think, the base conversation when people are gossiping about celebrities that they know. Yeah, well, it's true. So in the, so both Phil and I have been entertainment journalists uh, for a long time and um, have done many junkets and across like theater and film and TV and things as well. But yeah, the most common question I'd get from people I meet is like, oh, who's the rudest person you've mm. ever met? Yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. they want to know. That's the thing. We, we want, for whatever reason, we want to know. And, and, but to me, at least the celebrities that I've met in my life, it's way more fun when you talk about the ones that were super cool. Not, not even because I'm trying to be a positive person. I don't even mean it like that. I'm fine. I'm fine to, you know, gossip with anybody, but, <laughs> but it's like the stories in which like I met Renee Zelliger one time just randomly and I was blown away. She was so nice and like charming and funny and warm and just like, and I left that being like, I will tell anyone that wants to know that Renee Zelliger is a goddess, you know, <laughs> it's just, it, it, you become that much more like interested in that person if you've had a good experience with them. Yeah. And so when whenever people are like oh like who's a jerk i'm like i, I don't know I, I don't know who's a jerk but i'll tell you renee zellweger is a dream yeah well, I'll, uh, let me just briefly tell you then taylor about it. i told natalie this earlier after we'd interviewed lionel richie i had a producer who was very much a producer right some producers want to be in front of the mic he couldn't want to he couldn't stand it didn't want to be anywhere near and was quite he's gregarious in real life but professionally quite shy right and after we'd finished with lionel i said thank you very much and shook his hand and he went thanks man and Gibbo, my producer, said to him, Lionel, I've got to say thank you to you. He said, your music has got me laid more often than I have. 
and Lionel Richie went, whoa, thanks, dude. And he liked it. You could tell he liked the man that's written all these great ballads, like to know that the music works. <laughs> that is great. That is great. We'll see. We could put, Next time I'll put you at that party and you can tell that story for Lionel Richie. <laughs> yeah, actually just on the party. So your fictional party that you have in Malibu Rising is just the again i don't want to spoil yeah. it but it's kind of got everything you'd want yeah. a, a killer hollywood party in the 80s with all these different clashing personalities and you kind of give these short short kind of vignettes between like a couple of characters that we don't get to we don't need to know that much about but was that one of the most fun things to write yeah i mean come on it, it was it was totally fun and i think you know what i wanted to do and i think it 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 works to do what I wanted it to do, but I have seen that there are people who are like, why am I learning about these famous people? I just want to get back to the Riva drama, which mm -hmm. I get to, but I really wanted to put you at the party. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel like you're not just reading about a party, you're standing in the corner, seeing what all of these famous people are up to. And I wanted to have that fun where it's an immersive experience. I want to put you at this party. And so for me, I was like, well, if I'm at this party, I want to know not just what the but the beautiful surfers on the beach are doing. I want to know like when you invite the movie stars, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. What's the screenwriter doing? What's um, you know, the the waitress who's giving it all up and moving back home, what's she doing tonight? And it was I wrote so many more of them than than made the final cut. Um, I tried out a bunch of different things just to try to make this party as vivid as possible and then ended up putting in, you know, the ones that that I really loved the most. Um, you know what we it, both want to know now, don't you? Is we want to oh, know, have you been at a party like that? Please. Do I seem cool enough to have been invited to a party <laughs> like that? No, I, I've been to some crazy parties, but I've not been to any that had that many famous people and ended in flames. No. Okay. <laughs> and, and also, I think in general, like, and, and this happened with Daisy Jones too. Like, I write about cool people, and I think some of that perception of coolness rubs off, where people are like, "Oh yeah, like you seem like you you're really into the music scene," and I'm like, "I should seem like I read a lot about it from right, home, right? Because that's what I did, you know." <laughs> um, but I just didn't know because uh, isn't your husband a screenwriter as well? He is. So yeah. I didn't know if between you, you'd have been invited to some cool yeah. shindigs and you'd well, seen some misbehaving movie stars. We, we have def I have definitely been invited to some cool places and seen some misbehaving movie stars. That is 100% true. But, but I think the difference is for me, I'm truly such a dork that I'm like, <laughs> Oh, Oh, there's Coke there. there There's Coke here. I think we should go. We should just go. <laughs> everyone's doing coke we should just go um as opposed to the people at this party don't feel that way they're hanging out they want to see what happens um and and again this is what we're talking about i get to pretend that i'm a different person i get to you know pretend that i stay at the party until the wee hours of the morning and there's people passed out on the carpet and um which is which is not who i really am i'm much more the person who's saying to my husband like oh it's it's gonna be 11. we should get we should get home because you'd hate to not be in bed before midnight yeah in, uh, a, in a similar way i'm like uh, again as somebody who's covered a lot of these things occasionally you get invited to some but more often than not you're just covering that anyway but <laughs> i have not been ashamed in my career to send many an email it's like so like the start time of this thing is whatever like eight should will there be food there should I like eat before because like I don't want to like I'll, I will turn up with snacks in my bag if you're not going to provide me with food and you don't have to provide me with food but it's very important that I get fed this evening it, it's just a really unclear hour for a party will there be food or not yeah exactly. I think that's a totally reasonable question and I also think it's a totally reasonable to do what I do which is always eat before and yeah, then exactly. still eat <laughs> likewise come on yeah cool. yeah um, my question, actually, when you were talking about the your fictional party in Malibu Rising was, have you snuck in any characters in there that we're going to then meet in the next book oh, or the next book? Good question. You know, it's so funny. I so, you know, like I was saying at the top, the next book is almost done. Um, and I was at the at the beginning of my tour. It was like, OK, do you want to talk about the one that's coming next or not. And I was like, well, I can't tell people what's happening next. I'll give a clue. And then I just gave, 
I've just been giving too many clues. I suddenly I'm like, uh oh, this is going to start to come together. Uh, so here's here's the clue that I've been giving, and now I can't give anything outside of this clue because. I'm getting nervous, but okay. it's going to take place in the nineties. That's what I can say is that it'll take place in the nineties. And, um, and I'm very, very excited about that because it's the first period of time that I've written about in a while in which I was really, um, old enough to engage with the culture. And so with something like Malibu, even, even when I'm doing, like I'm, I'm saying general hospital or dynasty, I knew of those things. I, wasn't watching them this is the first time where i'm like okay well we got to talk about the counting crows because i was obsessed with them in the 90s and obviously lisa loeb we should talk about or i i even made a note this morning of like oh put in the milk mustache ads because those remember those from the 90s where it was like every famous person would be sitting there with a milk mustache and some like i rewatched um reality bites recently totally (sighs) holds up so good Ethan Hawke is it for me. Like, like anything with Ethan Hawke in it, and especially 90s Ethan Hawke, like that period of time when he was doing Reality Bites and Before Sunrise and like all of those, like, come on. I should put him in it too. Like, I just, I have such like really intense 90s nostalgia and I'm just funneling it completely into this yeah. book. Yeah, I've got a tiny bit of 90s in my one that I'm writing now, but that's the flashback one, which isn't in it that much. It's more set in the present day. Um, but yeah, I've got some stuff in there when I was it's just, clearly just me at university. So. I just, I think we're just far enough away from it that what's fun too is fun and sort of horrifying is watching the next, this next generation start wearing the things from the 90s yeah with with not seeming to understand that there's any reference to the 90s like girls today are dressing like it's the 90s and they all love friends and i'm just and it's like i think they there's like a sense of like oh this is like a cool old thing and it's like it's not old it can't be old if it's old i'm old (laughs) yeah Um, just before we kind of spiral off to some other topics as well on the structure for Malibu Rising because selfishly I'm (laughs) interested in this because it's mainly set over these 24 hours in in two parts you've split up the 12 hours of the day with the flashbacks into June and Mick's um, relationship and I feel we're going to run out of time but I just need to say that I think I love June the most. Um, uh, How easily did you decide on that structure and when when to tell what you did and when to flash back and how long to spend in each time zone. I initially thought that going hour by hour through a party and seeing all the other guests at the party was a really cool way to tell a story. And so the party was sort of the point. But then when I started um, researching and, and coming up with exactly what would happen in my mind, I realized, well, you can't have it all unfold at the party. You need to see what's happening leading up to the party. And so I thought, oh, okay. So it's not just the party. It's the full day. Okay. 24 hours, hour by hour. Got it. And then I was typing and like writing the first, the first chapter. And I was like, you know, okay, that's done. Pat myself on the back. 7 a.m. Okay. Now let's go to 8 a.m. And then I was like, wait, you have no idea who these people are or what their parents are like, or what they're trying to break away from. This structure doesn't work. And so I then came up with the idea that it would be two parts. You have the day and you have the night, you're going hour by hour, but in the daytime, the characters and the characters are reflecting on the story of their family up until this moment. And at the, and then once you get to the party, that space is taken up with all of these wild celebrities who are up to no good. And so each hour by hour has a counterpart that, it fits within the structure, yeah. but but breaks it up a little bit. And that bit. felt and- to me like a brilliant investment as a reader. I'm reading all this backstory and thinking, well, she, she's got to be telling me this for a reason. And then when it gets to the party, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm with you. You know what I mean? I thought that was yeah. really, really, it felt like a really worthwhile investment. Well, I, thank you. Because I, as I was doing it, I was like, I made this up. This is not any traditional structure. If it doesn't work, it looks asinine and so i'm glad that it ended up working because i again i i am playing with structure 
but I'm just trying to find the best structure to tell this particular story. And it's not always, um, it doesn't always fit into an easy box. Um, can I just push you on something you've mentioned in the acknowledgements, right? Mm, yeah. To Sylvie Rabineau and Stuart Rosenthal, are you happy that Mick Reaver saga has come to its full conclusion? Question mark, open bracket, or has it? I make no promises. <laughs> so, so Mick Reva, as we were talking about, exists in Evelyn Hugo, he exists in Daisy Jones, and he exists in Malibu Rising. He also is mentioned in a short story that I did for Amazon Originals. Um, and every time I sell one of these adaptations, my lawyer and my agent who are sylvie and stewart have the hardest time trying to what are they basically like carve out my retaining the rights to mcreva in particular because i i've sold them to different companies mm. and three different companies can't own the same character and every single time i turn in a book and mcreva's in it my poor lawyer and my agent are like, you did this again? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm really sorry. My my manager is like, okay, is there is Mick Reva in this one? Because it's like his voice getting like higher and higher. <laughs> you don't understand creatively. This is important to me. I'm sorry. And so I and literally I felt when Malibu was done. You know, Malibu Rising is McReva's book. So this is the this is the adaptation. If it comes to pass, this is where we will see McReva in the flesh. This is where he will exist. And God. and yeah. And when I was writing the acknowledgments, I really was so thankful because I know that it wasn't just a standard deal and they did have to work their butts off to get to make this all work. And I so I wanted to say thank you. But then I was like, well, I don't want to box myself in. If I do want to do it again, I don't want to upset in writing that I wouldn't. So there, there you see, I'm playing. I'm, uh, I'm keeping my feet on both sides of the fence there. Uh, and, and he's in the next one. Uh, he's not. Okay. okay. That's my answer. Okay. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> He's not question mark. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Damn it, who put a question mark on the teleprompter? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before our time runs out, we should probably close up some of the exciting Daisy Jones stuff that's happening. So you, the thing that I really liked is that obviously at the end of Daisy Jones, you've written these 10 songs, full lyrics, and they're being made into songs, right? For the TV adaptation. Yeah, there, there are songs. They're going to rewrite them so that they fit the, the story that they're telling. But, but will there be a song called Aurora? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like there, I believe there's, um, and I'm not holding them to this. Things may change, but one or two of the song titles will, will stay. And then they're making and writing that song. And so, um, you know, Who's when I'm writing, they is um, a, a group of people led by Blake Mills, um, who's phenomenally talented. And the music um, that I've heard so far is just like chef's kiss. So good. I, I heard it for the first time and I was like, cool, cool. Don't cry, Taylor. Don't cry. Like you're in a room full of people. Don't cry. But it, it really and then I cried. Um, but it is just great. And the thing that I think is really difficult about making this music is that it has to be just to feel like it's of the 70s but also sound good now mm -hmm. and and to modern listeners and i think they've done that really beautifully i think i i between the cast the scripts that i've read and the music that i've heard i was ready to like put on a game face and be like yeah we'll just we'll see how things unfold and instead i'm like it's so good you guys are gonna like it's just they've done just i mean it's a dream it's a dream that's really cool yeah i mean and, and you know i'm sure i don't know if you look online on things when things get cast but i know with daisy jones in particular people are like oh, who is playing daisy and who yeah and and like sam claflin and riley keogh just seem great you can totally see them in those in those oh, characters yeah. so yeah absolutely wonderful. also they seem to be friends now and so occasionally they'll appear on each other's instagram and uh it's just the cutest thing it's just like so endearing and they have such great chemistry and they're going to be fantastic that is really cool and did you purposely i assume choose not to get involved in the writing on these adaptations even though yeah. that's kind of in your world as well it, it is but can i tell you with this book in particular 
I chose a screenwriting team that I have loved for such a long time. I was so fortunate that they wanted to work with me that I felt so confident, take this, do it, make it your own thing. And that's why it has been so lovely to see the scripts come back and to just, I mean, they're so good and, and reading them and I'm going, wait, I don't think I ever wrote a scene like that, but it feels like it would have been in the book. Like that's how, you know, that's how good it is. And so, yeah, Scott Newsetter and Michael Weber, just just real incredible talents. That's so cool. That's so cool. Um, so I was going to ask, before we just get your recommendations, if you still get imposter syndrome at all when you're actually writing, are you confident in your abilities? Because again, as somebody who's read like a draft countless times now, your kind of objectivity goes out the window a little bit. Can yeah. you stay objective? And do you still believe in your talents as a great writer, which you are? That's very nice of you to say. I actually think I am less confident in being a good writer today than I ever have been. And, <laughs> and I don't know why, but, but I think part of it is um, when you only have a few eyes on you, you know, it's, it's easier to be like, oh yeah, there, there might be something here. This could be good. Somebody might like it. And, and then you get more and more eyes on you. And there's, you know, in any book, there's plenty of people that are like, oh, this is garbage. <laughs> and you're like, oh, is it garbage? It didn't occur to me that it might be garbage. Let me think about it. <laughs> um, and so I think, I think it's ultimately a good thing. I'm really checking myself. I'm listening to the good and the bad of what people are saying about my work. I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to be better and I'm trying to grow. And if, and if I put out, you know, if the next book that I put out is not as well written as this one, or this one is not as well written as another, then I'm not quite hitting my goal of trying to grow with each one. Do you have people that will definitely tell you that? Because I, I think that's the oh, kind yeah. of criticism that often gets leveled at some people is that you get so, whether it's acting or writing, whatever, you kind of get untouchable and, and all of a sudden, whatever you do is great. So yeah. you've got no clue. <laughs> I wish I had some of those people that would just tell me everything I did was great. No, I, I, one of the things I'm really, really fortunate about is that because my husband is a screenwriter and he knows how to tell a story, he very, very gently tells me uh, my place. And, you know, I've, I've had a few books where he was like, yeah, this is not good enough yet. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, and, and look, my, my team in general, the people that I've surrounded myself by are really, are people that are really ambitious for me, both you know, professionally and creatively. And so when things come in and they, they aren't perfect, um, which nothing is, but they're not good enough. Uh, I have a lot of people around me who are like, you're totally capable of this, but it's not there yet. And it hurts. And, uh, I get, you know, I kick and scream, but ultimately I feel really, really fortunate because when I do release a book like this and I, um, and I do believe in as much as I do, I, some of the confidence I have is that my team did put me through the ringer on it and did hold me to a standard. And if I met their standard that they held for me, then it can't be that bad. I, I must've done a good job. And I, and so I know you know, my, my lit agent, my editor, my team here in LA, they wouldn't let me put out something that was categorically bad. So it can't be garbage, right? <laughs> if they liked it, it can't be garbage. As you mentioned your husband, we should just give him a shout out because uh, I heard a story about him when you guys first got together and you first offered up some work to him that you'd done and he was the screenwriter. Just tell me that story because I think it's really lovely. It, it really is. I, and I don't know if it's just romantic to, to writers, but it is maybe the most romantic moment of my life, which was that Alex and I had just met and he had uh, just like within a few years completed a screenwriting degree at UCLA. And so from the beginning of meeting him, he was like, I'm a writer. That's what I do. I'm a screenwriter. That's what I'm, you know, working toward. And I had just been like playing around with writing a story but I certainly was not at a place where I was going to say I was a writer. And I was about halfway done with the story, which ended up becoming my first novel that I, I didn't publish. And I was like, I don't even know if I should finish it. I don't know if I'm any good. Would you read it? And so he's like, I'd love to read it. So he takes a few days and he reads it. And I'm like, okay, what do you, what did you think? And he said, 
I am so embarrassed that I've been going around calling myself the writer. You're the writer. And I mean, I just melted, just melted. And then married him two months later. Um, <laughs> literally, literally, we eloped uh, not long after that. Because um, if a man says that to you, you know, yeah. you snag him. You don't let him go anywhere. It, and he has that, that moment, you can extrapolate so much from that because he has been so supportive. He has put my career and my voice first so many times in our life. And I would not be here without his support and encouragement, but also sacrifice. When you're in a marriage, sometimes one person's career has to take precedence. Once you have a kid, it becomes you know mm -hmm. that even more so. Mm -hmm. um, every time push comes to shove, uh, my husband chooses to put his wife's career ahead of his own, which is which is something that is not super common, but I do think is more common than we talk about. And so to I think there are a lot of men like Alex and, and to all of, of those men, I I just I salute you and I want to I want it to happen more often. I really benefit from that. Yeah, um, my husband won't listen to this, uh, but I should give him a <laughs> shout out to you. <laughs> In a similar way, like I'm, I'm kind of my worst enemy in that I kind of got into journalism initially because I was like, oh, well, I don't think I'm good enough to like write a film or be a musician. So, but I really want, I love that world. And I love those creative people. So I want to be around them, but I'll just, I'll do it from a journalist. And it's taken me years to kind of build up the confidence to actually write a full book. I've been saying it for literally years and, and I've been with my husband since I was 18 and the whole way he's been like, when are you writing? You have to do your writing. When are you going to do it? And uh, we've got two kids and it sort of just got to this later stage where he's been like you know what something changed in my work and I was like you go freelance okay we're going to do a budget you only have to earn like this this amount a month and you can focus on your writing and I'm going to take this and yeah it's I know it's a privilege but it's you're right it doesn't get spoken about that much that you do need good people around you to lift you up to yeah and and I think it's important to acknowledge when you have it because if there's a question of like, oh, well, how, like, I, I think, especially with, with when you have a kid, it's like, well, how are you doing all this? How are you balancing all of it? And it's like, it would be really disingenuous for me to not acknowledge that I have a lot of help. And that, and that one of the people that helps me do that is, is my husband taking on, the, you know, often the majority of the childcare and, and yeah. things like that. Um, you know, men, writers in particular have for, for generations and generations had the ability to be incredibly prolific and make a lot of of work, male writers, you know, uh, writing some of the, the greatest books of the, the past century because someone else was watching their kids, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, uh, I benefit from that now too. So I want to acknowledge that. Very well. My takeaway from that chat is that I now feel super inadequate. I need to up my game. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we'll just, we'll just change it one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get some recommendations from yeah. you then? Absolutely. Okay. So the book I'm reading right now, which is completely stunning and I'm not at all surprised because she's been a phenomenal writer from the beginning and is a, a someone that I now can call my friend because I stalked her and made her be friends with me. Um, <laughs> the great, uh, great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. It just came out. It's just one of those books where the sentence by sentence are just beautiful and, and really well written and, and deserves to be really sat with and, and absorbed. Um, it's about an aviator in the first part of the 1900s and then the actress who will play the aviator in the adaptation and going back and forth between those stories. And it's just really beautiful. Um, and then I've got some some romances that are really good this summer. One is um, One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which I remember Casey, when she was writing it, had pitched it as like a lesbian version of Kate and Leopold, where where Hugh Jackman is like lost yeah. in time. Yeah. So it's it's that on a subway and it's just beyond cute and and just a dream. They both sound great. I haven't read either of those two, but I'm adding those to my list. They're, they're both great. And then and then the other one is The View Was Exhausting by McCain Will Clements and Anjali Dada, which I think comes out next month. But if people like the celebrity piece of Malibu Rising and want to spend more time in that space, what Michaela and Anjali have done is they have this movie star and she's just come out of a scandal. And so she wants to be seen around town with her 
you know, playboy friend, Leo, who they play with the paparazzi when they are trying to distract from other stuff. But, you know, fake romance, maybe it's turning into a real romance, but it's just really beautifully written in the, in the, the, um, the lead actress, the main character is just such a great character. She's really original and she's really interesting. And uh, I just, I just loved it. So I think that's, but that's cool. The view is exhausting. I've just looked that up now and that's mm-hmm. out here 6th of July. So there's every chance by the time you hear this epic audio. I saw that you have read a couple of, so we, we interviewed the first guest on this series of bestsellers was Dawny Walton, who we spoke to yes. about the final revival of Opal and Neb, yeah. which I saw that you really enjoyed that as well. Yeah. Well, she, she did a really phenomenal job and I, and I had the privilege of moderating a conversation with her on her book tour. And she's just such an interesting person with so much to say that I'm glad, I'm glad she was on this because she's just, uh, just very wise. Yeah. She's yeah. Super clever yeah, her, and really we? smart and loved how she immersed the real world in her fictional world and made you believe it all. Um, and then I'm yeah. only saying this because I want Phil to read this book too, but um, uh, in a couple of weeks time, I don't know if we're going to do her for the podcast, but we're speaking to her for something else. I'm getting to speak to Robin Lee for the idea <sighs> of you. Oh, <laughs> Robin. I mean, first of all, Robin's a friend of mine and she couldn't be more charming and polished and just great. But also, can I tell you, you know, like when, um, <laughs> when a friend sends you their book and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to be really supportive. Like, even if it's not good, whatever. I read her book and I was like, my god it is so good it's one of my favorite books how did my friend write one of my favorite books oh. it's like I, I try it's like i some she's been a friend of mine for a long time and then it became like oh am i fangirling over you now because it's like <laughs> it, it is this this thing where she just excels at both and so uh she's gonna be a great conversation and that book is just like a dream and if you ever she really was smart because she predated Harry Styles going on on his own and becoming, yeah. you know, a rock star, which is really when I fell in love with him. But my, I first fell in love with him when reading that book because you, you can't help but think about Harry Styles when you're reading it. And boy, is it just—I mean, you'll be blushing within like ten pages. Yeah, it's I read crazy. it like actually just two weekends ago, and I was—I did that thing. I was like, "Yeah, kids, can you like finish your dinner? Because my mommy needs yeah. to go just read a little <laughs> bit more of this book." oh it's just great yeah it's really good oh taylor this has been such a pleasure we could talk to you for hours but i agree day of writing to get on with and um (laughs) i generally hope we get to do this again and i'll tell you all about my parents (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah. absolutely i will ask such nosy questions when we're in person you better watch out (laughs) it's fine um listen yeah i just echo what natalie said thank you so much um we're huge fans of yours and this book's gorgeous it's a really really gorgeous read Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you again and it's lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thanks. So for me, that was the second time I'd interviewed her because she came on a radio show that I was doing. And I I have to say each time, I'm so impressed by how down to earth she is and how humble she is about the success that she's had. You know what I mean? It's kind of, I get the sense that she can't quite believe it herself, but she needs to believe it herself because the books are so good. And they're so readable, aren't there? There's a real readability to them. And I know that might sound obvious. Why would you say that? But some books, you find yourselves going back to go, hang on, well, who was that character that came in there? Hang on, let me go back a page. And then this, you don't, you never have to do that with a Taylor Jenkins read. And I think that's a massive compliment. Yeah, it is. But I also think that the writing that she does and the person that she is, you know, it wouldn't be the same if she did believe and totally buy into all that genuine and deserved hype that comes around her writing um because that that can change people um we've seen it change people right in our entertainment line of work in the past but yeah no I think Taylor's great um I should confess as well I did edit out a tiny bit at the end why <laughs> I don't even remember Phil because <laughs> I was like thank you so much Taylor and uh I'll keep you posted on my book and she's like yes please do and she was being so polite oh. and I was like <laughs> I'm just gonna so why would I take it out and then talk about I'm so stupid again I think it's um, endearing yeah. were you worried that you were coming across <laughs> as a stalker uh just a little bit needy, right. I think. Less stalkery, just a little bit like, I think you're really great, thanks so much. But genuinely, I do hope <laughs> that our paths get to cross again at some point in the future because, as you said, there's so much to admire and learn from the writing of Taylor Jenkins Reid. One of these people will give a, a quote for your cover and then, can you, then imagine? you can feel less needy. <laughs> then you can feel like, oh, yeah, that was all right to say that after all. 
Yeah, but let's let's we're jumping ahead of ourselves here. Um, somebody has to buy the book first, a publisher, and then we can uh, talk about cover quotes. But uh, yeah, that would be cool, obviously. So what's next? What's next? Uh, next week is Claire Macintosh. Ooh. But before we get to next week, obviously, we've said this before. If you haven't yet, or even if you have rated and reviewed this podcast, we'd love for you to do it again, just because it helps everybody discover it. And as we said at the start. We are getting some great listeners around the world, which is really pleasing. So, yeah, rate, review it. Um, takes two seconds or less, and that will be lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> See, I can't believe you said you were needy. 